a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon and welcome to Inside Sources. I'm Ethan Millard filling in today. Thanks so much for tuning in to KSL News Radio today. And boy, can you believe that? What's happening uh, today between President uh, President Biden and Vladimir Putin? Just uh, astonishing stuff. And I'll tell you what, I mean, we got a lot to get to uh, here in this show. But just since we just heard that, I hope President Biden holds the line with Russia. I, I really do. And I suspect he will, because I've gotten you. You know this about me. If you remember the old night side days, but I know a lot of you have this, too. But I've got a long personal history in Eastern Europe, specifically Romania and Hungary talked about Romania in that in that uh, little press briefing quite a bit. And I'll tell you what, Russia makes those countries' lives miserable. And I do not know why Russia believes that the best strategy for them is to make the countries around them chaotic and poor. But that is their strategy, and they have to stop. They have to stop messing with other with other countries, pardon me. All right, but we're not really going to talk about that today, except, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of send a little cheer towards President Biden. Hopefully he holds the line. Uh, I'm, I'm rooting for him on that. But let's talk about today in another context, because December 7th is a big day in American history. 80 years ago today, Japanese bombers and fighters took off from uh, a fleet that had quietly crossed the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, then a U.S. territory. And on December 7th, those planes launched from those uh, carriers who were escorted by destroyers and submarines, and they flew towards Pearl Harbor. On their way to uh, Bomb Hickam Field, some of those Japanese bombers and fighters flew over the house of a young boy named Mike Rose. Uh, Mike Rose has told the story of Pearl Harbor from his perspective as a young boy for years now and is recognized as one of the youngest survivors of the attack. And we have a real pleasure today. Uh, Mike Rose joins us right now on the phone. Mr. Rose, thanks so much for joining us today here on KSL News Radio. Well, thank you for having me. And Mike works just fine. You don't need to say Mr. Okay. All right, Mike. Thank you. So, Mike, uh, I'm just going to start with probably the most – you probably got this question more than any other question, but as a young child, you saw those bombers, you heard them, you heard the fighting. What was going through your mind as a child? Well, uh, to be very honest with you, I was just three years old, okay? I was playing in the front yard. And a swarm of aircraft went over my house. Now, when you're three years old, you don't know what war is. You mm-hmm. had no idea what the political background was on the situation at the time. But the noise scared me, okay? And being halfway competent, I did run and scramble under the front porch stairs. That's where my mother found me. And I later found out through research, because I've been a research historian for a long time, that 
27 Japanese Kate bombers, horizontal bombers, flew uh, directly over my house uh, during the second wave of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And they were bound for Pearl Harbor specifically. And you have to remember that it wasn't just Pearl Harbor. They attacked military installations all over the island. Kaneohe, Naval Air Station. Wheeler. Wheeler was the very first. Army airfield hit. The logbooks checked them. It was at 7.47 a.m. The first log wasn't even taken in Pearl Harbor until about five minutes of eight. So the, uh, the island had already been under severe attack. Uh, the military bases, uh, Iwa, uh, Marine Corps Barracks, Hickam Field, Bellows Field, they were all struck by 350 aircraft from the Japanese six carriers that were laying some 230 miles north of the island of Oahu. Was that good just, for a starter? <laughs> yeah, that's and it's just astonishing. And it is, and anyone who's been to the memorial there in Hawaii, which I I had the chance to to do uh, a number of years ago, visit that area. You can just see it's it's not a big space, and the skies were chaotic, and it was just absolute madness. And I can only imagine what it would have been like as a small boy. You know, uh, Hawaii at that time, at your age, must have been an idyllic place, beautiful weather, amazing places to play. On that on that morning, you were out in your front yard. How do you remember that life changed for you after that attack? Uh, well. The next morning after the attack, we had two Army soldiers come to the front door. Now, we lived in Kahala, which is just on the backside of Diamond Head, and we lived right on the beach. There was a small road in front of the house, and there were a row of palm trees, and then this white strip of sand. And the two soldiers, they said to my dad, he said, uh, you've got to get your family and get out of here, or you can't be here. Because the two greatest fears we have are, number one, the Japanese will invade, and you're on a beautiful, calm bay, and this would be a primary landing zone for the Japanese, and you really don't want to be here. The other great fear, of course, was we're running out of food, because all the ships that were bringing foodstuffs and everything from Christmas trees on up and down... They all turned around and went back because the Japanese had a couple of submarines out there that were picking them off. And so we had to move out of our house. And uh, my father was a civilian. He worked for the Firestone Tarn Rubber Company in downtown Honolulu. My mother was a housewife, and I had a younger brother, Peter. And uh, we had to self-impose exile, as it were, for about a week, and then we were notified by the military authorities that uh, the uh, Japanese fleet had retreated, and the possibility of invasion looked uh, pretty remote, so we were allowed to come back to our house. Now, uh, we're up to the point where the Japanese fleet has retreated, so the risk of major invasion has gone, but every, everything's still on edge. And, Mike, I wanted to ask you specifically, because I know that, because uh, I, I was able to read through some of your bio, I know that you and your family had some Japanese friends, and there are a lot of Japanese uh, people with Japanese heritage on uh, living on Hawaii today, back then the same. How did 
things change in those relationships, and how did you perceive that as a small child? Well, I immediately uh, recognized there was a change because we had a young Japanese girl who would come into the house every day and help my mother. She was a teenager, and her American name was uh, Violet. And the day after the bombing, we never saw Violet again. And many of our friends, my parents' friends, were Japanese. We intermingled with them socially. The Japanese are wonderful people, okay? People get the wrong idea sometimes. They are wonderful people. They were at 40% of the population. They ran most of the service business. If you went to the market or the gas station or something, uh, the Japanese controlled a lot of that. And uh, tragically, here on the mainland, so many of them were put away in camps after the war started, which is one of the greatest embarrassments this country's ever experienced. Uh, That didn't happen on the island of Oahu or in the islands at all because they were so important to the commerce. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did recede as a people back into their own culture and, and didn't tend to go out uh, that much from what I'm told. But for me personally, I never got to see my friend Violet. And she would be the one who would take me down on the beach and play, you know, while my mother would be home doing housework. Wow. Now, eventually, um, your family had to leave Hawaii. But they split you up. Your dad had to stay. Well, women and children had to be evacuated first. We declared we were declared uh, unnecessary. My father was selling tires for Firestone, and uh, who was the first guy who lost his job when the war started? And it was anybody in the tire business because you couldn't buy tires during the war. Yeah. So, uh, ten weeks after uh, the bombing. We were notified by the authorities. We had been given some advance word that uh, you will be called, you'll have three hours' notice, have your bags packed, anything you can carry, and you'll be put on a ship headed for the mainland. And uh, my father, who had a lot of friends in town, he knew people in the port control, and they called us the day before, and they, they said, hey, D, your family's on the list for tomorrow. So we actually knew, my mother, my brother, and I, well, he's a young boy, and so am I. But my parents knew that we'd be leaving that, that following day. And we went aboard a British troop ship, which was a converted canard liner, one of the great ships of the Atlantic travel routes prior to the war. But keep in mind, the Brits had been in the war for a year, year and a half. The ship had been painted gray. It had been outfitted with uh, depth charges and guns. It was a full ship of the British line. It was technically a military ship. So uh, technically, we were a target. Wow. But fortunately, uh, we were put in a convoy with seven other ships, military and civilian. And we sailed out of Honolulu Harbor, uh, headed for San Francisco. But now, the- on that... On that ship, I'm curious to know, as a young boy, was that fun for you? Were you bored out of your mind? What what was it like? Uh, I didn't like it at all because those life jackets they had only seemed to come in one size. And when they put one over me, I had to look out through the top. Oh, geez. And, and we weren't allowed on deck. 
we had to stay in the cabin unless we were uh, going to the eating place wherever we were headed. Yeah. And this was a huge ship. It was the fourth largest ship in the world. It was the RMS Aquitania. It was longer than the Titanic, actually. It was yeah. oh, launched. Really? It was launched just two years after the Titanic, in 1914. So it had been a serviceable ship in the in the Atlantic Ocean for a long time. Now, and, Mike is is uh, is Bo right there with you? No, he's in listening to the radio in another room. <laughs> oh, is he okay? Well, Bo, come in here because we want to chat with Bo also about uh, about the event because Mike, you're doing an event up at the Fort Douglas Museum, and, I, and I'm, I'm getting the impression you're up there right now. Yes, um, I am. We've been talking to some folks, and they have a nice little setup for us, and uh, and it's been great. And I'll be okay. here until uh, the museum closes at 5, so if people want to come on down, I do have some artifacts that uh, they might enjoy looking at. I have the burn corner of a Japanese parachute where the pilot perished when he crashed. Oh, wow. And I have a piece off of that airplane, and I have a piece off of one of the midget submarines, the one that washed up on a beach not far from my house. That's incredible. Bo, yeah. I think we've got Bo on the line. Yeah. Bo Burgess is the director uh, and historical collections curator at the Fort Douglas Museum. Uh, Bo, thanks for helping us get set, get set up. This has been just such an amazing, amazing tribute to that day. Um, so Mike's going to be up there the rest of the afternoon. People can come up, see his artifacts, meet him in person, chat with him. What do people need to know about this event you're hosting? Yes, yeah, so today uh, the museum is open until 5. Um, our regular operating hours are Tuesdays through Saturdays from noon to 5 as well. If you can't make it in to chat with Mike today, do feel free to come up and take a look at the exhibits. Uh, we are a free public museum under the Utah National Guard, and we are the state's officially recognized uh, museum for military history and repository. So we have all areas of Utah military history um, here and those who served from Utah and are currently serving and um, all different branches of service. So definitely come on up today, um, chat with Mike one-on-one. -on -one. He will be here until 5 when we close. And, um, and then Mike also partners with us on some other events as well um, that we do annually. And the Fort Douglas Museum is up at the University of Utah. You guys have parking on site? We do have parking on site. Um, there's a parking lot next to us, and there's parking um, right in front of the building right there on, on the street. Wonderful. All right. We'll put that into Google Maps, Fort Douglas Museum. Go on up there, check it out. Some great World War II artifacts, and you're going to meet this uh, fascinating man, Mike Rose. Thanks, both of you, Mike and uh, Bo, for uh, joining us today. Uh, we're going to grab a quick break, but I want to give a little heads up on what we're going to see on the other side of this break. We're going to be chatting uh, about what's happening with climate change, because we saw just a, a, another big uh, conference, climate change conference, but some are saying, hey, you know, these different governments that are getting involved, they're not, they're, that's not where the action is, that they're not headed down the right path. They need to try and follow a more business-oriented approach, one that really encourages and inspires individuals to get involved. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we return. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.